What's up, everyone, and welcome to Making the Shift. We're an SLP couple from California with three boys and a passion for finding better ways to support autistic kids. I'm Chris. You might know me as Speech Dude. I'm a neurodivergent high school SLP and the creator of the dynamic assessment of social-emotional learning, and I specialize in crafting neurodiversity-affirming IEPs through my online course. And I'm Jesse, a sensory integration trained SLP, owner of a top rated clinic in Los Angeles, and the creator of the Inside Out Sensory Communication Programs for Parents and Therapists. Join us weekly to learn neurodiversity affirming ways to support social emotional development and regulation in autistic kids. Are you ready to make the shift? Let's do it. Hello, hello. Welcome to Making the Shift. It is just me here today, your favorite half of this show, (laughs) your pregnant half of this show. And I am 19 weeks pregnant now, and that's pretty much halfway. Normally, you wouldn't count it till you're 20 weeks, but with Jack, he was born two weeks early. So I'm going to go ahead and say that may happen again. We'll see. So I'm counting this as pretty much halfway through this pregnancy. And in case what you're wondering, if you're wondering what that's like, it is the point in pregnancy where it is starting to take effort to roll over in bed. So it's like just enough where it wakes you up when you are trying to roll over in bed. And honestly, I'm just trying to be grateful for the sleep I'm getting now because I know it gets harder and obviously no easier when you have a newborn. So anyway, I am here today because I had posted on my social media asking, do you have any questions for us? that we can answer on the show. And I was so overwhelmed by the responses. So many questions I got, amazing questions too. Too many questions to answer in one show, but enough and lots of patterns, I would say, that I definitely wanted to come on here so that I can answer some of those big questions for you. So a lot of people ask me about, you know, my background in sensory, like why I'm doing this, um, you know, maybe specifically why I'm doing this as an SLP. And my training in sensory and kind of knowledge of sensory started from before I even went to grad school. So it was in my very first job after college as an SLP assistant. That's where I was trained in floor time therapy. That's where I worked alongside OTs. And that's really where sensory was planted for me. And it took, oh gosh, more than 10 years of then working with kids for me to actually go back to get my sensory integration training. So up until that point, you know, of course I'd done tons of other trainings and courses and seminars and reading and research and all of that. But ultimately I decided that I wanted to get this additional certificate. So the sensory integration training that I did was through University of Southern California which is where all of the work of Dr. Jean Ayers originated from. And she's kind of known as like the person who brought all of the research and sensory into the field and made it a field really. So that program is designed for occupational therapists post-grad school. So that's what it's meant for, but they let a few other professionals sneak in. So I was able to get in there Um, went back for the whole training, different semesters of classes and tests and the whole thing. 
And it was really an incredible experience. But I will say that generally speaking, the approach of sensory integration is not what I do and not what I utilize day to day. Sensory integration is really meant to be something that is a long-term approach to helping a child's sensory system. So where I like to focus my time is how can I actually use, you know, we're not thinking necessarily long-term changes to the sensory system as SLPs. We're thinking, how can we use sensory strategies to get our kids regulated so that we can get more out of them in our speech sessions and so that they can get more out of their speech sessions, right? Because we know that kids need to be regulated in order to be communicating in the most effective way possible, most efficient way possible. We need them regulated if we want them learning. So that is really what my specialty area is. And honestly, I don't even know how it got to this point. It just kind of like one training after another speaking engagement kind of snowballed into people started calling me the sensory SLP before I started calling myself that. And um, when I was starting to be interviewed by people, they just started saying like the sensory SLP and then it just kind of stuck. <laughs> and now here I am. So super excited to get you some of these questions answered. So we're going to go through a few different categories of questions. One big category was on how to collaborate with other professionals or parents who don't have the same views as you do on why this is a need or don't have the same knowledge on neurodiversity affirming practices. We had a lot of questions on that topic. Um, some good questions that reminded me more of emotional regulation type questions. Lots of questions on sensory seeking types of behaviors and kids who need a lot of movement. And then I'm gonna end today telling you about my favorite sensory equipment. Like I said, so many more questions than this. Lots of questions on assessment and goals, which I would love to do a full show on for you guys alongside Chris, because he is such a huge, um, got such a huge resource. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Bank in his head of ideas relating to assessment and goals. So that is definitely something we'll address too. But today I, wanna, I wanted to talk first about what we do when we are working with people who maybe don't share our beliefs. So one question specifically from someone was how to collaborate with colleagues who use more of a behavioral approach and disagree with using sensory strategies. So there's this girl, we've been seeing her for a long time. And she, I, I was on her team. I've been on her team on and off for years and recently kind of went back to her team to start trying to collaborate with them, but really just educate them more on a neurodiversity affirming approach. So I did a lot of observing. I observed her like every single place that she went over a series of weeks. And what I saw when I went to her classroom was that, and I think she's, I want to say kindergarten, but I think she's, she's seven, but in kindergarten, um, again, for the second time. So her um, support therapists in the classroom were using her, was using her sensory bin as reinforcement. So it was like essentially using a token economy system and then rewarding her with sensory. 
And that was obviously something that I noticed really quickly. You may have heard me talk about this recently on social media, but then we had a big meeting with our whole team and they were talking about that using her sensory bin as reinforcement essentially or reward system. And, you know, I said to them, because it's just so hard when, especially when you're in a room with people who have like such different views than you, but I knew in my heart what I needed to tell them and what I needed to share. So I said, you know, in the nicest way possible, can I reframe that for you? Like, is it possible that I can reframe the way that we're thinking about sensory in this way? And then I really described to them how we don't want to use sensory as a reinforcer because our job is not to teach kids to ignore all the signals in their body. And then once they can do that long enough and attend to something, they get their sensory reinforcement, right? That is not the point of using sensory. Um, If they're using it because it's more fun and they're trying to give her something fun, that would be different. But the point of sensory is how can we help kids to learn what they need and be proactive. So proactively ask for the things that they need and be able to get those needs met so that they can be regulated longer, so that they can attend longer. It's not do this for so long and then you can get your reward of getting what your body needs, right? So you see the disconnect there. So I think that sometimes just reframing why we do things is really, really helpful for people because a lot of people just don't know. I mean, think about maybe where you were five years ago. Did you know this, right? I think about who I was in the past. There's a lot that I didn't know. And once I started to learn, you can start to make those changes. But a lot of people just have really never thought about it that way. So I think it's really important to bring things up. Um, When we want to get someone on board with what we are trying to teach, it never works to attack them, right? It never works to say, you're doing it wrong and I'm doing it right. What happens? Our brain shuts down, goes into fight or flight, doesn't listen, we get defensive, okay? So I would say, I'm not going to lie because I've tried to use this approach before, but when we are trying to use the, well, this is what's right and this is what's wrong approach, it's really hard for people to actually be receptive to that. So I would say always seek to understand. Help me understand why, you know, sensory is being used as a reinforcer here. Help me understand why you are doing this in this way. And really trying to understand why they're doing what they're doing before um, trying to come up with alternate solutions. Because ultimately, what is going to change people is if they can come to those conclusions on their own, right? It's like Chris, I tell him, I just read the most amazing book. You need to read this book. Guess what? Is Chris going to read the book? No, he will not (laughs) read the book, right? But if he like hears people talking about it and it comes up here and there and ideas are kind of sprung and he comes up with the idea to read the book, of course, he's going to read it. Okay. But people do better when they're not just told do this, but when they're able to reflect on something and come to that conclusion themselves. Okay. That's not to say that I'm not very, (laughs) I don't know if I want to use the word aggressive, but I share about 
trauma and how there are certain ways and certain approaches we can use that will lead to trauma and it leads to masking. It leads to issues with mental health later on. So I'm not afraid to have that conversation with people about, um, you know, when we force kids to tolerate things that are uncomfortable for their sensory system, we're essentially causing them trauma, which is going to cause them, you know, future anxiety, make them not want to come back here in the future, um, cause a lot more problems. Right. So I'm not afraid to talk about how, how often it is that kids, um, you know, are traumatized from approaches that may be used. But I think that in cases like this, if you are having people that you're working with who just aren't on board with using sensory, and I've, I hear so many of these questions are asking about um, helping older, quote, older SLPs. So maybe SLPs with more experience see the important, helping supervisors see the important, helping teachers. There were lots of questions about this. I think that if you want someone to do something, you are going to, you're going to be most successful if you could tell them how this is going to benefit them. That's just how humans are, okay? I'm trying to think of an example here, okay? It's like if a kid comes into therapy, kid isn't talking, kid is screaming all the time because they can't, don't have the language to ask for what they want. When you are framing that to the parent as, oh, well, it'd be so great, you know, if he had these words, then he wouldn't have to come to you and hang on to you and scream and cry when he wanted something, he would be able to use his words, right? And the parent's going to be like, oh, wow, yeah, this is going to make my life a lot easier. So I would say whatever professionals you're working with, what is their goal for the child, right? And how can you help meet that goal by providing them more information on sensory? Okay, so for example, if a therapist's goal is to try to get a kid to attend longer, using sensory and helping that child proactively is going to accomplish that goal. And you're not going to have to fight with that kid anymore and try to like force them to sit there when they really don't want to, when their body doesn't want to sit there because you're going to have already gotten their sensory needs met and you're going to have their attention for longer, right? So it's just more about like learning what their goals are, learning about why they're doing the things that they're doing, and then trying to help them understand how sensory fits into that picture. So someone also asked about, you know, what about when teachers say that the sensory needs in a classroom are distracting to others, which is so funny because I just talked about this recently. And I think that it's funny because when I get that question, I'm like, who is it distracting though? <laughs> is it distracting and bothering the teacher or is it actually distracting the other kids? Because most kids don't ever sit still. I sometimes it's such a good reality check to go to a preschool. I might be doing a preschool visit for one of my kids and I sit there and what do I do? I look at my kid. I notice my kid is not sitting still. Okay. And then what do I do next? I look around the circle. 60% of those kids are doing the same thing. Okay. A lot of kids need to move. It is not just like probably one kid. So it just makes me think, well, who is it distracting? Is it distracting the teacher and bothering the teacher or is it distracting the other kids? But the thing is that this is such a bigger picture question of 
how we really need to help kids understand and accept neurodiversity, right? And the best thing that we can do is model acceptance and model understanding, which means instead of saying, hey, you need to sit still for five more minutes. It's, hey, you look like you need to take a little bit of a walk. Looks like your legs want to move around. Do you want to go stand in the back of the class for a few minutes, right? So I think that it's really so much more just about modeling, understanding, modeling, acceptance for different brain types, modeling that our bodies need different things and not about having kids feel shameful for the things that their body needs really modeling acceptance and understanding. So um, another great question I got kind of along these lines was how to start conversations with parents about neurodiversity affirming practices. And, you know, this is really tough. And again, no better, do better. A lot of times um, parents haven't had access to this information and they just don't know. My favorite way to introduce parents or therapists I'm working with a lot of times if we're sharing a client is by recommending autistic accounts. But instead of just saying like, oh, this person's great, go follow them. I have in mind like a very specific post that I want to share. Okay, for example, I was working with um, a therapist who was stopping one of my kids from stimming and with her fingers. And I was like, oh, how, do you I do you follow any autistic accounts by the way on Instagram or TikTok? And she's like, no. And I said, oh, you've got to see this video. And I pulled up this video that I love, one of my favorite videos. I've probably talked about it on the show before, where um, it's visual stimming, what you see versus what I see, and then it's a video. Um, and her handle is Nigh Functioning Autism. And she's going like this and looking in the corner of her eye and flapping her fingers by her eye. And that's the what you see. And then it turns to what I see and it shows her fingers from her you know, point of view, outlining this triangle of a shadow on the ceiling and like blending the shadow into the wall. So it's just one of those things where I think when you can actually have like specific posts that were so meaningful for you that you can share that really helps parents um, and just depending on, you know, whatever the specific topic is you're trying to teach. Okay, this one was kind of along those same lines, but in general, this is a parent who said they have a 20 month old that's been crying every session with their one-on-one -on -one therapist. They see him once a week and wondering, should I stop therapy? So I think the main question here is, does the approach align with the approach that feels right to you? Okay, so I don't have any context, obviously. I don't know what the approach is, but the question is, does this approach feel good to you? Like, are they doing something that's play-based and they're being so engaging and sweet to your child and the child just happens to be crying? Or are they doing an approach that's like pushing your child out of their comfort, comfort zone, putting a lot of demands on them, making the child anxious? Okay, if that answer is B, I would probably say find a therapist who fits better with what you want for your child and what feels right. If the answer is A, the therapist is really engaging and great and play-based and et cetera, I would say, you know, can you be a part of it if you're not? 
but trying to get parents involved, um, having the therapist step back from actually being the therapist and turn into your coach and then you coach the parent and you're actually the one who is interacting with your child in the session. You know, that's something that we will do a lot. But for a child like this, you really just want to let them know that they're supported. Like you're not going to leave them. Nothing scary is going to happen. You want them to know that they are there for you. But ultimately at the end of the day, what I, my advice to any parent, any time would be follow your gut, trust your gut. And if you feel like that's not the right therapist for you, chances are your therapist is feeling that way too. Okay. It's usually a two-way street. Um, and I can say that because we've had this private practice for 10 years and I've seen lots of parents in here. We've had lots of therapists. We've had lots of therapists who feel like their therapist isn't a good fit and therapists who feel like their client isn't a good fit. And I think ultimately you just have to follow your gut and make sure your child feels safe. So kind of along those lines, going more into regulation, someone asked about a 15-year-old who constantly bites, picks um, toenails, needs to fidget, any tips? Could this be a sensory need? Yes. Could this be an emotional need? Yes. I, when I first read this, just immediately thought about one girl I worked with and I went to visit her at a social group and she was just picking her toenails nonstop and she wanted to be alone. She did not want anyone around her. And to me, that was more of a sign of emotional dysregulation. And it's really hard because a lot of times we can be emotionally dysregulated, but it can manifest in a physical way. So it might look like what we want is sensory, but really what we need is our emotional system regulated. So hard to give an answer on this without knowing anything about the situation, but I would say, look at the big picture. Is this child being really supported emotionally? Are they in environment with people who are supporting them and respecting them? Or are they in an environment where they are going through things that are really not fun for them at all, really uncomfortable for them? They're doing a lot of things that they don't want to do. They're, the people around them don't seem to be very supportive. So I would just think more about that emotional piece. How can we get a, that emotional piece met? If it's a sensory need and he just likes to pick and fidget, we give him, we give him fidgets and, and stuff, right? So that's a lot different answer. But I think that a lot of the times when I see these types of things like picking, it's coming from a place of emotional dysregulation. Again, don't know anything about the child, but that's just um, what I've seen in specific cases that I can think of. Okay. Um, how to help a student with sensory needs in a rough moment with multiple students. So similar answer, but first of all, trying to be proactive. If we can identify sensory needs and know what kids' sensory needs are before, the, before these big reactions happen, that's going to help us keep them more regulated. So what most kids need though, when they're in this moment of meltdown or this moment of overload is co-regulation, right? They need us helping them to co-regulate. 
So I think the more that we can stay calm, the more that we can validate them, the more that we can let them know that we are here for them emotionally, we are not judging them, we're not coming from a judgmental place, we're coming from a nurturing supportive place, the is that is what the child needs in that moment. Okay, lots of questions about sensory seeking. So gonna kind of put them into one, but I'll give you some examples of the types of questions. How to support a student who craves vestibular input, loves to spin, be upside down. Another question about a child who loves to be upside down. Um, how to help a sensory seeker who roams during circle time. Um, sensory seeking baby, how to keep him engaged. What do I do if my child is constantly moving? So a lot of questions kind of in the same ballpark. So the main thing to know about kids who are sensory seekers is that they have a really high threshold for sensory input, meaning they need a lot in order for their body to register. They need a lot in order to really feel it. So we, we need to give that to them because if we don't give them a lot of sensory input, they're just constantly going to be in this area where they're not getting enough and their body can sense that they're not getting enough. So doing lots of big, intense movement activities, if the child is seeking movement, is exactly what they need. And a lot of these cases, that is exactly what it is, is movement seeking. Okay, so giving them lots of movement. For um, kids who like to be upside down, and I don't know if you could do this, depending on your work setting, maybe you're a parent, we, I will have kids like spider sit on me and flip them upside down. Um, maybe if they're swinging, swinging on their belly or on their back. So any kind of head position is going to activate that vestibular sense because our receptors for our vestibular system are in our inner ear. So anytime we can be moving them around front to back, spinning, laying, any kind of head position, we're going to be giving them that input. So the main thing is giving them the input. And I know that can be hard. Um, gosh, we were just talking about this with a bunch of parents in our program, but giving a lot of sensory input so that they can get that threshold met or else they're just gonna be constantly seeking. So if that means having to reorganize your morning so that they're getting a lot more input before school, you know, that's what it might look like. Um, that might mean more frequent breaks at school, allowing them to get up and walk around the classroom. If they're old enough, take a lap around the school. Um, maybe that means standing in the back of the classroom. Maybe that means sitting on a yoga ball in back of the classroom. So the main thing to know is that they really need that movement. And that's something that we need to honor, not something that we need to change. We're not trying to teach them to hold it all in and suck it up. We are trying to teach them a way to get it. But if they are needing a lot, instead of having them, you know, giving them, having them do more intense movement as opposed to like softer, more calming movement. So if you are going to let your kid take a walk around the school, having them take a jog around the school is going to give them more input, okay? Instead of having them just like stand in the back of the classroom, maybe you've got a mini trampoline in your classroom and that will give them more input or a yoga ball where they can really bounce and get more input. Okay, last question I'm going to address today because it was a fun one. Was my top 
sensory equipment? And this question was specifically for a small office, which I get it. Not everyone has a gym, but here's my, actually, I'll give you my number one last. Okay. One, I didn't bring it in. Yoga ball. Yoga balls are large, but you can use it as a chair. Good core workout. You can also kind of tuck it up onto a shelf if you need to. Yoga balls, I could not live without. Bouncing kids on them, rolling the yoga ball on top of them, having the child roll on top of the yoga ball. I sit on the yoga ball and then the child sits on my lap. So many things you could do with the yoga ball. You can also just make it the chair instead of making it its own whole activity. Okay, so that would be one. Another is this, which is a sensory sock. So this is like a Lycra um, sensory sock and kids can get in it kind of like a tight little sleeping bag. We could play peekaboo in here. They can just sit with it on them. They could wrap it around them, gives them a lot of deep pressure. So I love this for kids who need a little bit of calm. Um, another one is squishy balls, which I know is like the easiest, most basic thing, but we love having containers of just different squishy balls. I could play with those for a half hour in a session with a kid of just like squeezing them. Maybe they'll tuck them under their shirt, get them on their belly. Um, just loving all the squishy balls. Some of them you can push on and they kind of like bubble out, pop out. There's just so many things you can do. And um, when kids like to touch stuff, that's really fun for them. Um, on the opposite, Play-Doh, which maybe you never really thought of as a sensory activity, but Play-Doh is one of my favorite things to do with kids. If they need it to be fun, I might make it a snake and have the snake pretend to bite them, give them little tickles. But if they need something calming, some of the best activities I've had or times I've had with kids is um, rolling the Play-Doh up their arms really slow or pushing the Play-Doh on their hands really flat and slow or having the child push. So really good calming activity there. Okay, number one, you guys are gonna hate me for this because it's not that exciting. But my top sensory equipment is what I'm sitting in right now, which is a spinning chair. And that's because you don't need a swing to spin. You don't need one of those boards, spinning boards. You can just use your office chair. So if you have a regular chair right now that doesn't have wheels, just trade it out for one that does. And super, super fun. Push kids around, pretend they're in a car, spin them one way, then spin them the other way. So much you can do. Okay, I haven't been watching the clock, so I have no idea how long I've been going. But I hope this was helpful. If you have more questions, shoot them to me. This was really fun to be able to know that I was answering questions that were things that you guys really wanted to know. And like I said, some of these questions are so great that they deserve a whole show um, themselves. So we will get to those. And thank you so much for being here and have a great rest of your day. If you enjoyed today's episode, hit subscribe, write a review, or share it with a friend. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.